G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're going to be talking about Jesus from the East. Now, that's an interesting one because here in Australia, we're considered to be in the West. And so we'll be talking about different ways to think about Jesus, a fresh look at history's most influential figure. You might recall with some sadness that the great Ravi Zacharias died late last month. And there have been great tributes from around the world for his clarity and depth, understanding the biblical, the philosophical and the theological perspectives that mean an amazing defense for Christian faith. Well, Ravi's last book was co-authored with Abdu Murray, his senior vice president at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. The book project was called Seeing Jesus from the East, a fresh look at history's most influential figure. Abdu Murray was a proud Muslim until a nine-year historical, philosophical and scientific investigation pointed him to the Christian faith. Abdu lives in Detroit, Michigan in the United States and he is joining us live on the line from the US. Abdu, a special welcome along to 2020. Well, thanks for having me, Neil. It's great to be with you. Abdu, let's spend just a few moments reflecting on Ravi Zacharias. Uh, It was a very sad occasion to lose Ravi, and we actually postponed this conversation uh, that was due to happen just the day before Ravi died. And uh, and so I wonder whether you've got a a few thoughts there as to things as they have developed since uh, Ravi's death, uh, since his funeral. What are your thoughts here? Well, you know, it's uh, thanks for asking, by the way. It, it's so uh, hard to sometimes fathom because um, I was in Sri Lanka with him, actually, uh, doing some uh, work there with Louis Giglio. We were doing a pastor's conference and um, filming the video curriculum for this book. And he was always waking up every single morning. I'd see him over breakfast, and he would say how bad his back was and how much the pain was bothering him. And he had such a, a chronic back problem. that We thought it was just more aggravation from the back issues turning out It ends up being a sarcoma. And what happened was so quick from that trip. I was on his last international trip with him to the last time we shared a stage together. He was ever on stage was at University of Miami. He just was a trooper the whole time in agonizing pain. But you wouldn't know it. But the way he was carrying himself and preaching the gospel the way he did. And then, of course, it was so sudden because it went from just a pain thing to a back issue to realizing it's cancer to him passing, and it just seems so sudden and so quick that right now I still have a hard time believing that he's gone. Uh, I keep feeling like he's just on another trip. He's, he's on another ministry trip, and I'll we're, we're parting ways for a momentary uh, time, and we'll come back together soon enough, and I'll see him again. But, you know, the interesting thing, of course, Neil, is that that's actually true. He's part, we've parted ways just very temporarily, um, waiting to be reunited. Uh, at a time when we will be together again, we'll both be in glory uh, because uh, of what the Lord has done 
and because of the message uh, of the gospel that Robbie has preached so eloquently over the years. But, you know, um, the ministry is in strong hands. Robbie had the foresight. He really did have the foresight to uh, set up the organization so that it could, it could continue without him. He named Michael Ramsden our president. Uh, he's a wonderful speaker himself. He's the president. And uh, Sarah Davis, Robbie's daughter, is the CEO of the ministry. Uh, and he put the, the hands in good leadership. And we have over almost 100 speakers around the world who are doing the, the job of helping the thinker to believe and getting the believer to think as well um, uh, with the, through apologetics. So as I reflect on Ravi's life, I think about a life well-lived. I think about a gospel message preached so strongly. I think about an ending, a finishing that he did that was so amazing. I mean, I could share with you the, the intimate moments we had beforehand, and all he was saying was, preach the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Keep it going. Keep it going. Uh, and he managed to have the prevision enough to set up an organization where that exactly would happen, where we're all primed, ready, and in, in fact, continuing to live on uh, the legacy that Robbie left. And um, we can only hope to do it with the kind of grace and dignity and clarity that he did. Well, Abdu, he's left a tremendous legacy and listeners on this radio station will have the benefit of that because we'll be continuing to play absolutely amazing insights that come from Ravi Zacharias. And you've got a tremendously unique connection insofar as you are the co-author of a book with Ravi Zacharias and uh, this one called Seeing Jesus from the East, a fresh look at history's most influential figure. Uh, Give us some insight here into how it comes about that you get asked to co-author a book with Ravi Zacharias. Well, it's a dream come true in so many ways. I remember listening to Ravi when I wasn't even a Christian when I was a Muslim and hearing this Indian man talking about Jesus in such a, co- a cogent, intelligent a way where he bridged East and West in so many different ways. And I knew he was speaking my language as someone who hails with a heritage from the Middle East and my former Muslim background. Uh, I identify with Ravi so well, but I also was raised in, in the East and sorry, in the West. So I understood the way he spoke that way too. And he bridged them both. Well, our mutual friend and colleague, Nabil Qureshi, who wrote the best-selling Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, um, Nabil being from Pakistan and also himself a former Muslim, uh, he, his idea was this book. His idea was to recapture the Easternness of Jesus once again so that Westerners could see him in his authenticity and that Easterners could see that Jesus isn't the icon of white imperialism um, as opposed to being the Middle Easterner he actually is. And so he approached Ravi originally, Nabil did, and wanted to write this book with him. But uh, as uh, many people know, Nabil took ill, himself succumbing to stage four stomach cancer before he could put pen to paper to write this book. And so Ravi approached me and said, um, given your closeness with Nabil, given your own Muslim background and your Middle Easternness, would you want to accompany me in writing this book? And of course, uh, before he even finished the question, my immediate answer was yes. I wanted to be involved in this project because it spoke so near and dear to my heart as well. Um, both Ravi and I, and of course Nabil, wanted desperately to communicate the transcultural nature of the gospel message and even the person of Christ himself. He is thoroughgoingly Middle Eastern, and he speaks with that Eastern and Middle Eastern tang, but he speaks to issues that we're wrestling with in the West every single day. And uh, some say, oh, you know, Jesus is outdated and outmoded, and the Bible is an outdated, outmoded, irrelevant book. Yet the way Jesus speaks and what we try to show in the book is that not only does he speak to the Eastern mind and the Eastern heart, but he's actually addressing issues we in the West are only now coming to terms with. 
So he remains, to quote Leslie Newbigin, our eternal contemporary. Wow, there's so much insight to be able to be gleaned and we'll try not to uh, waste a lot of time and we'll try and keep on a a focus so that listeners can really capture something of your heartbeat today. But in setting this up, of course, you were, and I mentioned this in the introduction, you were really like an apologist for Islam and uh, now you've Mm -hmm. become an apologist for Christianity. It was a major I think a nine-year time when you were researching all of these different issues, uh, you were arguing Islam against Christianity. And when you talk about the way that Islam or those in the East would see Jesus as a Western imperialistic ruler, an icon of of imperialism and colonialism, so you've come from uh, that position and you've had a a 180-degree turnabout, and you've become an apologist now for Christianity. A little insight here uh, into your own story here, Abdu. Yeah, absolutely. And it does factor quite quite a bit into the book as well, because there's a whole chapter on honor and shame cultures, which is a culture I come from. Um, so I was raised uh, in the United States uh, to be a proud Muslim, and I was very proud of it. I thought Islam was true. I thought other things were false that, that, that uh, contradicted Islam. Uh, and in the area I grew up in, uh, in, in the Detroit area, there's a, a very high Muslim population, a high concentration of Muslims. But then we moved to a suburb where there wasn't a whole lot of Muslims. We were sort of the dash of olive oil in the pot of rice, as it were. You know, there was a lot of white people around us and uh, people who called themselves Christians because back then, you know, it was still fashionable to call yourself a Christian. Well, I would engage with those Christians um, uh, and ask them why they were Christians, only to find out that most of them had no idea why. They didn't really have a firm setting of faith. They simply had a tradition of faith in their family, and usually it was very anemic. Uh, So I'd ask them, why are you a Christian? And they would say, tradition. And I would say, that's not good enough. You can't trust your soul to a worldview that someone else believes. Have you thought it through yourself? And most Christians had not thought it through themselves. Uh, So I said to them, well, uh, good news. I have thought it through for you. Here's 15 reasons why you're wrong and 15 more reasons why I'm right. And I wouldn't do it obnoxiously. It would be much more conversational. But along the way, there were, thank goodness, um, some Christians who actually knew what they were talking about, who not only answered my questions as to the fundamentals of Christianity, but had some objections they had lodged my way. And I needed to come to terms with uh, why I was a Muslim in the first place. And so I began to look at the Bible to find holes in it, to poke holes in it, to say, okay, here's a contradiction you can't get around. And I remember I was doing that, and in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, a verse struck me. It's John the Baptist who's baptizing people, and he says to them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Meaning, of course, God's judgment. And then he says something remarkable. He says, Do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father. In other words, don't rely on tradition. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. What John the Baptist was saying is is that your DNA, your heritage, it doesn't matter at all unless it's rooted in truth. And so I was telling Christians, why are you a Christian? They'd say tradition. I'd say not good enough. Well, John the Baptist was agreeing with me, but he was also asking me, and I believe this, that he was doing it through the Holy Spirit who had kept his words preserved over the course of the centuries so that I would read them and I would ask myself the question, you know, you've been asking Christians why they're Christians and they'd say tradition. Abdu, why are you a Muslim? And the real reason was tradition. 
I was raised that way. I was proud. It was a part of my heritage, a part of my identity. Well, that realization started that nine-year journey where I began to say, I'm going to take things not at just face value and swallow them wholesale in favor of Islam and against everything else, but I'm going to take the arguments and try to be as objective as I possibly could. Now, I had that entertaining thought in my mind, and I, I tried to do it, but the reality was the answers were easy to come by, but they were not easy to embrace. You know, I put it this way, Neil, that the answers are easy to find, but they are hard to accept. And so it didn't take nine years because I couldn't find the answers. It took nine years because I didn't want them to be true, because it would mean a whole betrayal of who I was, of my community, of my identity. And I wanted desperately to hold on to those things. But when I began to see something, that the answers made sense theologically, scientifically, historically, and, and in, in so many other ways, and personally, even to me, I began to see that the God that I wanted to be true in Islam was actually found in the Bible. That the God who Muslims talk about, although Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest possible being, that's what Muslims always talk about, that the God is greater, that's what Allahu Akbar actually means, um, that the God of the Bible, the one who expresses the greatest possible ethic, which is love in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice, that's the God I was looking for. And he was found nowhere else but in the pages of the Bible and in the history of what Jesus did on this earth. Wow. And that's when I became a Christian. So cutting through the tradition and searching for the truth. And while you say that applies to someone who is a holder of Islamic faith, what you're saying is that also applies to the Christian believer. Don't be reliant mm. even on your own tradition, but you must pursue your own search for the truth. And so when you do search for the truth, those things that become affirmed within you, those things that are uh, this idea of having a personal faith, this truth is a part of building that opportunity to have a personal faith in Christ. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it becomes a conviction. So um, uh, Robbie used to put it this way, is that an opinion is something you hold, a conviction is something that holds you. Um, so if an opinion can be changed. I often put it this way, is that you can have an opinion about something with an open hand. If someone takes it out of your hand and swaps something else into it, it isn't all that big of a deal. But a conviction you hold, you hold with a clenched fist, not in a defiant way, but it's whole, it's close to you. So in order to change your convictions, your fist has to be pried open, which is very difficult. But the, the Christian is told right from the pages of Scripture, and this is one of the reasons why I love Scripture, Neil, is that it actually tells you, put it to the test. Don't just rely on tradition. Do not have a blind faith. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians? He tells us that if Christ is not raised, then the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then our faith is futile, and we are of all people to be most pitied. In other words, Paul staked his claim. Paul staked his salvation, just like Jesus did, on the fact of the resurrection. If Jesus claimed to be the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world by dying on a cross and stayed dead, there would be no reason to believe him. But if he rose from the dead as a matter of history, there would be every reason to believe only him. And that's the, the, the wonderful nature of the Christian faith, is that it actually says, you don't have to rely on a, boy, I hope that's true, I hope my parents were right kind of a tradition. You can investigate it yourself and find out it's not just that it's tradition, it's that it's a tradition based on solid rock truth. So every Christian, I think it's incumbent upon a Christian 
to actually investigate that. But then the beauty of their faith begins to blossom through a thorough understanding of the philosophy and the theology and the history. And then you can share it with other people. But the point I think that you, you started to make was a valid one, is that oftentimes people have their convictions because of tradition and because of identity, because of, oh, my tribe happens to believe a certain way, and I can't betray that. Um, but Christ calls us to come and die to ourselves. He says, put all that before God, and if you happen to be in the right tradition, if, if your tradition happens to be true, great. But if it doesn't, Christ calls us to lay that down at his feet and be willing to pay the price. And here's the interesting thing. Even if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian your whole life, at some point you are going to have a, 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 a time when being a Christian will not be comfortable. It will be uncomfortable to be a Christian because you're going to stand up and make a stand for your faith. And then the question is this, will you be willing to pay the price? And if it's just tradition, the answer will be no. But if it's tradition based on truth, a thoroughgoing personal faith that is based on truth, then the answer will be yes. You will be, you'll be able to and willing to stand up to anything, to the truth that holds you like a conviction does. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Abdu Murray is our guest. He's co-author of the book Seeing Jesus from the East, a fresh look at history's most influential figure. Abdu, let me just, let's zero in on one of these obvious differences between East and West and the way we understand Jesus in the Bible. This idea that you mentioned of an honor-shame culture, which exists today but existed back in the first century too. Take us into what that means and how we we might be able to understand that with a bit of a Western mindset. Absolutely. And I think that's the way to really understand it is by virtue of contrast. Uh, so in the West, for example, we, uh, it's really about the morality. How, how, do we, how do we control or enforce moral codes, culturally speaking? So in the West, we have a very high individualization. You know, individualism is at a premium. You have a right to express yourself as you want. You have the right to believe whatever you want or disbelieve. If you want to, you can express yourself in all these amazing ways. And we uh, champion individualism. And there's some great, great aspects to that. But there are, of course, some shadow sides to a strong individualistic culture. Um, and that includes that we don't really think about how what we do affects the collective as much. It's like I have a right to say and think and be and act and do what I want in my own context. But, of course, everyone gets affected by our actions. Now, if we do something wrong in the West, because we are what's called an innocence and guilt culture, is that there's an internal sense of guilt that takes over, and we want to sort of become innocent, so we either confess what we've done wrong, or we try to do something to make up for it, because we're in an innocence guilt culture. Now, in the, in the East, it's an honor and shame culture. What that means is, because it's collective, we worry about what will our family think? What will people think of our family? What will bring honor to my family? What will avoid shame to my family in an Eastern culture? And then, of course, that also broadens out to the community, and that broadens out further to the nation. So if we're always seeking honor, we will try to, to avoid things from an external control, not internal, but an external control. The culture tells us what is moral and acceptable. So we'll conform to it based on what the culture says as opposed to what we tell ourselves. 
But here's the problem with that. While it's got its good parts, you know, um, I recognize that what I say and what I do will have an effect on people beyond me. The downside of it is that if something is true, but it brings shame to my family or to the culture, we will sweep it under the rug and we'll ignore it because exposing it could be shameful. Um, and if something is honorable, but it's false, you can embrace it because it brings a perceived honor. So you can see right where this goes with regard to religious claims. So if you're a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever it might be, and you have an Eastern mindset, um, and you come to the realization that Christianity is true, it's an inconvenience because changing your religious beliefs affects your family and affects your community, and it would bring shame. Even if your religious beliefs that you come to, like Christianity being true, even if that's true, it's still dishonorable. It's still shameful because you're rejecting your culture. You're rejecting your family. And so you, it, it, it taints the way we see uh, the truth and the way we come to truth. And, of course, that existed so much in Jesus' day as well, and he dealt with it in numerous separate instances. So that, that explains why, for example, I, I tell the story in the book about a young Indian man who had done, he was from a Muslim background, he had done tons of research on Christianity and Islam, and he already knew the answers to all the questions he already had. Yet when he was engaging with me in a conversation, he would raise the same objections he already had answers to. And so one could sit there from the West and say, wait a minute, how is it that he's not a Christian if he already believes all the things Christians believe? He's assenting to it intellectually. Well, the reason he didn't become a Christian is because even though he can agree Christians are right about who Jesus actually is. Wow. Embracing it as part of his life would cost tremendous amount of pain. Given those cultural understandings, there's got to be real strengths in the Eastern way of thinking about how you build family culture, hold community together. Yeah. And some of those things, as you say, are not quite so collective-minded in the West, but much more individual-minded. Should we understand some of those things and adopt some of those Eastern practices ourselves? And would that be a helpful thing if we understood how Jesus actually uh, had this understanding of, uh, of uh, honor and shame in the Scriptures? I think it would actually help a tremendous amount. And let me give you a specific example about how in the West we actually desperately need to understand and honor and shame culture. I think about what's happening now in the West when we have all these sort of cultural revolutions that are happening, whether it's issues on race relations or it's on gender issues or sexuality or whatever it might be. We're, we're dealing with all these various things. And what ends up happening is this. You'll notice something is that in the West, what used to be the case was you had an individual opinion, you had a right to your opinion, and then you could defend your opinion using arguments and facts. That doesn't happen anymore. Now what happens is if your individual opinion that you used to have the right to hold as an individual in the West, if it happens to run afoul of the accepted morality of the culture in the West, and you say something publicly, we no longer engage in debate with a person like that. Uh, we don't ask them for the reasons and the evidence and the arguments for their beliefs. No, we don't do that. Now what we do is we publicly shame them. We do what's called cancel culture, where if you're a rock star or you're a, an author, J.K. Rowling, for example, the author of the famed Harry Potter books, said something that ran afoul of the transgender agenda. 
Well, they started canceling her. They would no longer engage in reasoned argument. They would just simply cancel her and stop buying her books and these kind of things. Do you notice what's happening? That's a Western thing to do. But it looks so very much like an honor and shame culture. So if we learn from Jesus, who had 2,000 years of experience uh, to give to us over the course of these years, and of course has his own experience, maybe we would understand how to navigate a cancel culture that looks so Western, sorry, that looks so Eastern in its actual mindset, and we'll understand how to really interact with people. So we don't heap shame on people, as opposed to trying to understand who they are, understand where they're coming from, don't compromise on the truth, but bring the truth in a way that actually brings honor to people instead of cancels them as people who we just don't have time for anymore. So it would benefit us greatly if we listen to Jesus. So when we're reading about Jesus in the Gospels and we're looking through a different lens, this idea of an Eastern lens and the honor and shame culture, uh, are there other examples of how we might be able to uh, implement that sort of idea, that understanding about Jesus and know him much more clearly? Uh, What's another uh, illustration you can bring in here, Abdu, with regard to this honor-shame culture and how we might understand Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. So you take, take a look at the, 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 the story of the, the young man who was born blind in John chapter 9. And you can see the direct parallels to what's happening in our day right now. So the Pharisees had said essentially that anybody who confesses that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, they will be put out of the synagogue. They will just be kicked out of the synagogue altogether. Now that, back then, was the ultimate cultural shaming. We would call it canceling today. We, we, we do it now. We just do it in a different form. We don't put you out of the synagogue. We simply kick you off of Twitter or out of Instagram or whatever it is. We stop following you. You know, that's the kind of thing. So that was, that, that was the threat. Well, this young man is born blind. Jesus heals the young man on a Sabbath day because Jesus is a troublemaker. And he wants to do something that he knows will upset the Pharisees because he wants to prove a point. So he healed the young man and the young man can see. And he goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam and he comes back and he can see. Now, the Pharisees find out about this, and they're upset because they're thinking that maybe a scam is afoot, that maybe this man wasn't born blind, and that maybe the parents of this guy were lying this whole time. So they come to the parents, and they say, is this really your son who you say was born blind? In other words, we're we're calling you a liar. And, And the parents are now terrified of being put out of the synagogue, of being canceled by the Pharisees. And they say, we know this is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Well, of course they know. Do you think that their son didn't tell them? Look, I was blind, now I see, that's the guy who did it? Of course they know. And then they throw their son under the bus, and they say, go ask him, he is of age. Which means he's probably a really young guy. He barely looks like he's of age. So the Pharisees ask him. So the parents, for fear of being canceled, for fear of the shame, and wanting to preserve the honor of being in the synagogue, throw their son to the wolves. And their son says, he did it. He's the one who did it. He, just Jesus, uh, restored my sight. The Pharisees can't handle it, and they kick him out of the synagogue. They cancel him. They do what we do today in the West. They just do it in a different way. But Jesus sees what happens, and his honor and shame radar perks up, and he knows a, a public shaming has happened. This young man is going to be shamed forever. And he comes to this young man who he's now given sight to, and he says, I have come that those who, could, who were blind now may see, and those who thought they see may be shown to be blind. In other words, what he's saying is, is that 
these hypocrites are trying to take away a cultural honor from you, but I am going to give you as the son of God a divine honor that only God can give. So if you lose the cultural honor and you experience cultural shame, take heart because God can give you an eternal honor in exchange for that shame. That happens all the time now. People are experiencing shame and guilt in the West like they never have before. And Jesus is saying that whatever the culture, whether it's cyberbullying or body shaming or whatever it might be, Jesus can replace that cheap cultural honor with an eternal honor that only God can give. He did it in John chapter 9, and he can do it for us now. Abdu, let's get into uh, some of the issues here around how we might understand what we are missing here in our Western mindset when we're reading the Bible with Western eyes. Uh, take us into some of the ways that we might be able to perceive the differences here. And, and I know that you, when you concentrate on parables, there are some different ways that you can see what the parable means. Take us into some of these differences. Ooh, absolutely. And, you know, and when you look at through a Western lens, you get wonderful truths that come out of the, the parables that Jesus uses. But if you look at it through an Eastern lens, you get additional added facets. It's not replacement truths. You're not getting it wrong in a Western sense, but, but you might not be getting the full picture if you look at it only through a Western sense. An example, uh, hopefully, will suffice to show this. Uh, one of my favorite parables is the parable of the generous employer, or, or what's also called the master of the vineyard. And um, we, we see this in uh, Matthew chapter 20. So the parable goes like this, is that the, uh, Jesus is telling about what God is like. And he says, there was a master of the vineyard. And this, of course, is the proxy for God in the parable. And he goes to hire day laborers. And, of course, back then there were people who would go out, go out and go to a certain spot, and they would hope to get a job that day, whether it was working in the field, in the vineyards, or carpentry, or whatever it might be. And, of course, we have that today still. People do that today. They will stand out in front of a major a hardware kind of an area, and a, a contractor will come and he'll pick someone uh, to work with him for that day. Now, what happens typically is that when you uh, go for the first round of the morning hiring, everyone else who doesn't get hired goes home dejected that day because they didn't make any money. They didn't have the honor of uh, a day's work, of an honest day's labor, and they could make, earn an honest day's wage. So they would go home essentially uh, with that sort of dejection of, I didn't do it today. Well, so this master of the vineyard in the parable comes and he sees men who are there waiting to get hired. And he picks certain men to get hired. And he agrees with them. They negotiate. And he agrees with them that they will be paid a denarius for the day's labor to work in his vineyards. And off they go. It's a fair wage. Everyone's happy. They go and they go to work. Well, the master of the vineyard comes back a second time and then a third time and a fourth time and even a fifth time. And every time he comes back, he sees people who are there hoping to get hired. Now, those men should not have been there. They should have left. Everyone hearing the story from the Middle East would have known. Those men should have left, and they would have not gotten hired. It's very rare to ever get hired uh, on the second, third, fourth, and especially not a fifth round of hiring. And they would have gone home in the shame that they could not provide for their families. So that's an honor-shame culture. You would have recognized that. And I remember I wasn't even a Christian. And I recognized, what are those men doing? Why are they still there? Why is this parable have these men there? They would have gone home in this shame. Yet the master of the vineyard sees them, and he hires them. He hires more men every single trip. 
until the last trip when he hires men who work for one hour. There's only one hour of work left in the day, and he hires those men to work in his field. Now, where the parable turns, of course, is that he pays, the master of the vineyard pays the last guys first, and he pays them the same amount of money he paid the guys he hired to work all day. Now, that seems patently unfair. I remember uh, sort of my Western sensibilities were coming up and saying, wait a minute, did the Christian who pointed me to this parable know what this parable said? Because it looks like the God he's pointing me to is terribly unfair. Why would he pay the last guys who worked an hour the same amount of money he paid the other guys who worked the full day? That seems unfair. But then my Middle Eastern sensibilities sort of perked up and I saw, oh, I know what's going on here. See, here's what happens. The master of the vineyard rewards the men who held out hope all day that they would not go home in shame. They held out hope that someone would come and honor them with an honest day's work so they could go back to their families and say, you see this money? I earned this. We can eat tonight because I earned this. And the honor that I have of saying I earned it as opposed to just getting simply a handout or something like that. So what ends up happening here, and the depth is so beautiful, Neil, because if you understand the honor and shame culture, those men were so desperate to avoid the shame and so hopeful that someone would give them honor that the master of the vineyard, who is God in the parable, honors their faith that someone would give them a job as if it was work. He, one can only think of Abraham is that his faith was credited to him as righteousness, well, the men who waited all day for someone to possibly honor them with work, their faith that someone would honor them out of their sense of shame was credited to them as if it was work itself. And so the master of the vineyard paid them the same labor wage because of their faith, not because of their labor, because of their faith. That's grace. Now, what's interesting is that's the honor and shame Eastern mindset, but there's also a Western mindset that's satisfied here as well. So the guys who got paid first see this, and they say, wait a minute, you're paying them the same wage you paid us. You owe us more money. Did you notice what happened? He didn't say, pay them less. He's saying, pay us more. And what does the master of the vineyard say? Back to them. He says, friend, didn't you agree with me that you would take a denarius, and can't I be generous to who I want to be generous with? Now, what's going on here? So in the West, we often think of these philosophical conundrums. You know, how can God be sovereign and be in control of everything, yet every human being has free will? How can we be held accountable for our actions if God is in control of everything? This parable answers it. In the parable, they ask, how come you paid them this much money? And what does God say back to them? He says, friend, didn't you agree? In other words, didn't you exercise your free will and agree with me that a denarius would be a fair wage for your day's labor? Didn't I give you what we, we agreed upon? And can't I be generous to who I want to be generous to? In other words, can't I be sovereign? You see what's going on is that in the parable, sovereignty, God can do what he wants. And human free will, the men got to agree to the wage. They coexisted together. The divine mystery of sovereignty and free will of humanity is all coalescing together. So Jesus answers the Western philosophical question, while at the same time answering the Eastern desire for honor and shame to be represented as well. The men were honored for their faith. The men who were hired first were given the, um, the decision they made 
was actually honored as well. God sovereignty, human free will, honor and shame coalescing in just one story. And you get the richness of that depth if you understand Jesus from the East and not only a Western perspective, but add to your Western perspective an Eastern perspective to see the richness of the parable. Abdu, in your own journey of faith, these sorts of Mm -hmm. issues, because it could be just an argument East versus West, and did Jesus in fact straddle the divide? But the fact that he does that so beautifully and uh, as an affirmation, I can what I can hear as you tell those uh, stories in that parable, that I can hear an affirmation of his divinity that was what was going mm-hmm. to be resolving the issues of the heart in the first century continues to resolve issues of the heart in the 21st century. What are your thoughts here about just how masterful uh, Jesus is in the way he communicates through these parables? Oh my goodness, it's, it's so, it, it, it would be, I, I could spend, well, I wrote a whole chapter on it, but I could spend hours and hours talking about just how gorgeous it is that Jesus does this in these parables. You know what's interesting is that in the West sometimes we think that parables and illustrations are window dressing. You know, it's like you're, you're either gussying up your argument to make it look better than it actually is by giving an illustration, and you're really hiding the fact that your argument isn't so logical after all. Just give me the facts, give me the argument, and I'll listen to it. Well, that's a Western mindset. In the East, we love, we love story, but we love story in the West as well. I mean, how many moral tales are told to us? How many lessons are learned through classic books, through wonderful films that teach us wonderful morals and these kind of things? So we learn this way as well. And here's what I would say is that, yes, a solid argument backed up by strong facts and, and given logically can tell you what the truth is. But a parable that employs argument, employs illustration, and employs fact doesn't just tell you what the truth is. It puts you and me into the story so that you know what your relationship to the truth actually is and how relevant you are to the story. That's the masterful way in which Jesus told and, 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 and talked and gave his truths out to people is that he did it in a way that sticks not only in the Middle Eastern and the Eastern mind, but also in the Western mind. That's why we have stories like the parable of the Good Samaritan, which have lasted through the centuries. And now it's become a cultural phrase. You know, oh, he was being a Good Samaritan if he helped someone in need with no sense of his own you know, gain. We sort of label people a Good Samaritan. Lest we forget, that phrase comes from the lips of Jesus. And that story is so powerful and affected people 2,000 years ago, and it's so timeless that we use it now as a catchphrase to describe someone who Jesus was saying was being a proper neighbor to his own neighbor, even though the people were much not like Jesus. They were different, and different. The Samaritans and the Jews were so vastly different from each other, yet Jesus says, despite their huge ethnic and strivingly uh, opposed religious and political convictions, a Samaritan can help a Jew and we can have reconciliation. How timely it is that we need that message today when in my country is literally engulfed in flames in various cities because of the racial and ethnic divides that come along. And Jesus spoke to it in a parable in the Good Samaritan. And if we don't listen to that parable and try to be that kind of a neighbor to ourselves, we do so at our our peril. We owe him, we owe Jesus, we owe ourselves listening to him because he speaks the truths that we desperately need now. 
Well, it's the magnificence of those parables that has allowed the gospel to permeate cultures all around the world because no matter what the world view that the Bible is spoken into, if one is able then to appreciate how the Eastern mindset thought when Jesus spoke those parables, then they can be translated into every culture around the world. I mean, that's again, is just a, is an illustration, isn't it, of the magnificence of what God has done when he wants to introduce the whole world to salvation through his son, Jesus. Oh, absolutely. You know, one other parable, if I might just really quickly uh, describe, so there's a common objection people have to the Christian faith that it is narrow-mindedly exclusive, that Christians say only Christians can go to heaven, and somehow it excludes other people, it's terribly intolerant, and therefore, you know, Christianity runs afoul of the cultural norms and can be excluded as bigotry or, at most, at more tepidly, narrow-mindedness. But then you see the parable of the banquet in Luke chapter 14, in verses 12 and following. The parable of the banquet has this master of the banquet who invites people to come to the banquet, and they give them lame excuses. I can't come, I've got this, i got this, i got this, I can't come. So what does the master of the banquet do? He says to his servants, go out and invite these people, more people, keep inviting people, and they invite, and the house has still got room. And he says, go invite more people, go into the highways and the byways, and compel them to come in. Why? Awesome little phrase in the, in the parable, that my house may be full. The Father, God the Father, wants his house to be full. Why? Because he's inviting people to come into his house. Now, is it, it is an exclusive invitation. It does not come through Muhammad or Buddha or uh, any other system of belief. It comes from Yahweh the Father, uh, who sends his son to die on a cross so we can enjoy that banquet. But it's not an exclusive invitation. It is an exclusive means of salvation but the invitation is inclusive. Everyone's invited. And that's why the master of the, of, of, the, of the banquet says, go and invite everyone that my house may be full. God does not want to exclude us, which is why he sends his son to die for the sake of the whole world. But, but this is the invitation he gives us to accept his son. And he wants us all to accept his son that his house may be full. It's a modern-day objection Jesus answered in a parable 2,000 years ago. And Australia is a very multicultural place. There are people that are coming from all over the world, uh, migrants who have settled in Australia and come with different cultural mindsets. So when we have our neighbours here in Australia across the fence to our next-door neighbours or in our workplace with our colleagues or people that we might meet with in our communities, understanding Jesus and these parables a fabulous way to be able to communicate when we feel like that there's a cultural divide. So do you think that that's a, a recipe here for being able to make friends with and to help our neighbours understand our faith is that we actually introduce perhaps a favourite parable or two into our conversations? I think it's absolutely critical. Uh, people love a good illustration and a good parable. I think it's critical because it, they're so translatable. And many of the parables that Jesus said 2,000 years ago have been picked up in various traditions. And of course, there are variations and versions of, of different kinds of parables in other religious systems as well. And what you'll, what you'll do when you share your faith using a parable is one, like I said before, it not only tells them what the truth actually is, but it puts a person in the middle of the parable 
And so they can know their relationship to the truth. And then they can see that the Christianity is not a religion that is simply a basis of here are some dogmatic truths we believe, followed by a bunch of dogmatic rules we have to follow in order to get to a destination that we'd like. It's more than that. It includes a relationship to truth himself. When Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through him. It is that relationship to the truth. And parables are a beautiful way to express to somebody not only what the truth actually is, but how they can relate to the truth, because it shows that they are relevant to God. Not just that he's relevant to them, but they are relevant to him. Abdu, I've had this Facebook question and lots of listeners have been responding online and uh, I won't be able to give everybody's comments, but the question asks today, do you think our reading of an English language Bible gives a full understanding of who Jesus is? Now, there's been a poll operating and the current numbers on the poll, 45% say yes from our English language Bible, we can get a full understanding of who Jesus is. That means that 55% are saying no. Now, it's interesting the wording of that question, and uh, given that you're a lawyer as well as a great Christian apologist here, Abdu, you'll know that uh, a full understanding of who Jesus is is a different question than a full understanding of what Jesus taught. So I am asking a question there that listeners need to think very carefully about, but what are your thoughts for the English language Bible, and a full understanding of who Jesus is. Do we need extra aids? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in all of that? And, uh, of course, our cultural understanding. What are your thoughts here for the question that we've asked? Oh, wow, that's that's tremendous. And I love the way you picked up on the wording of it so beautifully, because there is an issue here, isn't there, is to fully understand who Jesus is. Um, The good news is, the good news, the good news is, is that, Uh, reading the Bible in any translation will never give us a full understanding of who Jesus actually is because he is infinite. And a book with a finite number of words, with inexhaustible truths, by the way, but a finite number of words can't possibly exhaust who Jesus actually is and the way we actually would come to see him because there's so much more to Jesus in that way. I'm not saying that Jesus and who he truly is is dependent upon our experience of him. What I am saying is that If he is, in fact, God the Son incarnate, and God the Son is infinite and um, uh, eminently searchable for all eternity, we will never exhaust all there is to know about Jesus, which is wonderful good news, because in heaven, in a place where eyes not seen nor ear has heard nor has entered into any of our hearts, what God has prepared for those who love him, um, we are going to have an infinite amount of time to learn something about God and who his son really is. And if you could exhaust everything there is to know about who Jesus is, then we're going to get bored at some point. But um, like uh, a wonderful marriage, for example, where we are married to our betrothed for a year, we're discovering new things about our wife or about our husband that we didn't know before. And um, even now, I've been married for 18 years, and my wife surprises me occasionally here and there. I've grown to know her and become comfortable with her in a wonderful, intimate way. But there are little new things I learn about her here and there. At some point, it's going to be exhausted. Uh, hopefully, the, the novelty won't wear off. But the reality is, well, if it's the Lord uh, tarries, we'll have a long, 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 happy marriage where we'll get very familiar with each other. The beauty of our marriage to Christ is that it is perpetually novel. 
there's a perpetual amazement to us because we'll never fully exhaust who he is. Now, that's true for every single version, every single translation of the Bible. I do think, however, that back to what Jesus taught, I think we can get a good understanding, even a full understanding of what Jesus taught through an English translation of the Bible. If you read the footnotes, this is important as a practical sense, is that a good Bible, a good Bible translation will tell you why the translators picked the words they did. Because here's a good example of something we often miss. In the West, we have a very individualistic culture. So whenever we read the word you, like, and I say unto you, we always think singular because there is no plural you in English, but there is a plural you in Hebrew in Aramaic and in Greek. Uh, so we often think that it's referring to one person. We miss out unless the footnotes carefully tell us this is a plural you. And so it's applying to community. And so Jesus wants us to understand his truths in the context of community sometimes, and sometimes individually. So we have to be careful that we don't just impose a Western individualized view on words, but rather think, could this be collective as well? But the bottom line, and I'd say this to you as well, and I'd finish up this answer with this, is that in Hebrews where it says in various ways and in diverse times, uh, uh, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So yes, we had the written word and we have the son of God. And what is the Holy Spirit's job? As you pointed out, Neil, the Holy Spirit's job is to point us to the son and to illuminate who the son actually is. And we'll be perpetually reminded of the wonder and beauty of this Jesus. And thank God it's perpetual because we will have a perpetual eternity to explore and understand and to love him. Well, just magnificent insights over this past hour, Abdu, and uh, what a blessing it is uh, to have been able to have you uh, contribute to our understanding the way you have today. And uh, to get a fuller understanding, people are going to need to get a hold of your book. And uh, knowing that you've co-written this with Ravi Zacharias, so many are going to say, I want to get a hold of it. Seeing Jesus from the East, a fresh look at history's most influential figure. And uh, just picking up on some of those wonderful insights, read the footnotes, understanding that it's not just to the individual that Jesus spoke, but to the collective, understanding that Eastern mindset, uh, just magnificent. So the book is called Seeing Jesus from the East, a fresh look at history's most influential figure. And you'd be able to get a hold of that book by Ravi Zacharias and Abdu Murray uh, from leading Christian bookstores. Or if you want to get a hold of it directly from Ravi Zacharias Ministries, rzim.org. That's rzim.org. And uh, great insights from Abdu Murray, who was a Muslim, But after an historic nine-year search, he's become a great advocate for Christian faith. And Abdu, just want to thank you so much for taking part in our conversation today. And I hope we get a chance to talk to you another, another day as well. But thanks for being with us today on 2020. My pleasure, Neil. Thanks for having me. It was a real honor. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.